0: listening to Gray City, Portland. That's quite a step there. I think that's the most I've worked out in a couple of weeks. (laughs) Okay. (sighs) Gray City, Portland. Look at you. It's like a, a little baby flying and now you don't need anyone anymore. You're just driving down the highways doing your own thing. If you have no idea who I am or why I'm talking to you like that, (laughs) I am from Grace City, Corvallis. So I knew many of you. Uh, We were family until you left us for cooler people in a cooler building and a super cool mission. And it's so awesome to be back here and looking at so many new and old faces. Um, A little bit about me. I am a wife to this strapping fellow here in the front row peace. Um, I've got a couple of little world changers downstairs, two boys, Arlo and Ollie, who, spoiler alert, when you become a parent, actually grow you up more than you grow up them. So I'm learning a lot on how to be a mom and just a human in general. Um, And I work down there at Grace City Corvallis as operations director. But before I talk too much about me, I want to talk about you guys, because Grace City Portland... (sighs) You guys are awesome. Your reputation is so good. And I wish you could hear the way that we speak of you in Corvallis and Eugene. We are just so proud of you. You are doing an incredible work here in Portland. Um, your, your mission is amazing and it inspires us to grow and be better. We love the way that you love the minute that you walk through this door. It's like a breath of fresh air. And you are loving the city well. You are loving each other well. And we just could not um, honor you enough. So thank you uh, for serving, and giving, and loving Jesus, and taking him at his word, and actually being the hands and feet of Jesus in a city, because it is a sight to behold. Two thumbs up for that. But back to me, we can talk about me now, because <laughs> here I am with a mic. When I was a sophomore in high school, I went to a movie with some of my friends. It was called Sweet Home Alabama. Any girls in the room seen that? <laughs> It's the story of a Southern Belle who moves to New York to be a fashion designer and finds herself engaged to one of the most eligible bachelors in the land, but has to go home to her hometown in Alabama to try to get this guy that she married in high school to divorce her, because he won't sign the papers. And you guys know in stories like this, the underdog, the one that she doesn't want is always the one that you want her to marry, right? And lucky for us, at the end of the whole story, um, she chooses him and life is happily ever after. It's a plot line I'm sure you have all heard before. Have you ever watched a Hallmark Christmas movie? I think they all follow the exact same thing. It's what we like to call a love triangle. So here I am, a sophomore in this movie theater, And I'm sitting next to my friend, Jamie. And then in walks Jamie's older brother and all of his basketball senior friends. And since we know each other, they come over to us. And one guy in this group, we'll call him Matt to protect his identity. (laughs) He comes up to Jamie and I and says, hey, Jamie, move over. And then he sits right in between us. Now... I was kind of a shy high schooler. A lot of things inhibited me from the boys. We'll start with my unibrow, but you know, we all learn. Uh, So I was super excited that this Matt guy was sitting next to me, and I don't really know if I paid attention much to the movie. I just paid attention to his breathing next to me, I think. And about three-fourths of the way through, have I ever told you this story? Okay. (laughs) About three-fourths of the way through, Matt reaches his hand over and grabs mine. Like this, not like this, y'all. First hand holding, we started slow, and it lasted about 35 seconds. For whatever reason, it ended, but I didn't care. It had happened, and I was super excited. Now, on the drive home, the car was quiet, and then Jamie piped up and said, you guys, Matt held my hand the entire movie. (laughs) And I said, "Mm, what do you mean he held your hand? Matt held my hand. And she said, for the entire movie? And I said, well, 35 seconds, but still, like, he held my hand. And in that moment, Jamie and I realized we were caught in a little love triangle ourselves. I have never felt the emotions that came after that before. But all of a sudden, I was filled with jealousy and insecurity and comparison. And I started to feel these really yucky thoughts, like, what does she have that I don't? What would I need to do to win Matt's heart? What would I have to compromise? What would I have to do to work harder or earn his love? And it did not feel good at all, it was new to me, so luckily I rejected that pretty quickly and got over Matt in no time. And so did Jamie, she never hung out with Matt again, actually he strolled into school next Monday dating the high school senior track star, which was much more sense for his love story of a movie anyways. (laughs) But those feelings that I felt in that moment have come up in my life far too often. And maybe you felt them too. Maybe you haven't been triangled between two people before. But you've probably been in a situation where you have felt like you wanted something and you were the underdog. And you felt less than or forgotten or unseen or not as important. Anybody else resonating with these feelings? Why is that such a common emotion to experience as a human? I don't know. But lucky for us, there's a story in the Bible that talks a little bit about this. Actually, one of the worst dramatic, just angsty triangle stories that I've ever heard. Sometimes when I'm reading this, I feel like I should be reading one of those cheap romance novels that you pick up in the chip aisle of Winco. Have you ever seen those? (laughs) It's kind of skeezy. And the more that I read it as an adult, the more I realize, like, this is not the story that I was told when I was a kid, but I get it, because if I was trying to read this to my three-year-old, I probably wouldn't go into all of the inner workings of the story either. So there's a lot of places that this story could take us today, and I thought it would be most helpful if we just paint a broad picture of what this story is, and then we'll focus in on a few of the actual verses in the scriptures. But to paint that story, I'm going to treat you like children and read to you from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I have a few people from the most famous formative love triangle of our generation that are going to be joining us up on the screen to narrate. <laughs> now, I know this might be a little confusing because that guy on your right Technically, his name is Jacob, but for today's story, I need him to be Leah, and Bella's going to be Jacob, and Edward's going to be Rachel, so this could get really confusing <laughs> really fast, so I'm labeling them to help you follow along. Are you ready? Straight from the Jesus Storybook Bible, here we go. There once were two sisters. The youngest sister was very beautiful. Her name was Rachel. Rachel. But the oldest sister wasn't beautiful at all. Some thought her quite ugly. Her name was Leah. Rachel was the kind of girl who always gets invited to parties and chosen for the team. Everyone loved her. And poor Leah, no one hardly even noticed her. One day, their cousin Jacob came to stay. He was one of Isaac's sons, and he was on the run. Jacob had stolen and cheated and made some enemies, including his brother, and now he was in hiding. Jacob stayed a long time working for his uncle Laban. One day, Laban said, Jacob, I've decided to pay you for your work. What do you want? A sudden thought struck him. Maybe one of my daughters. Jacob looked at Rachel and he looked at Leah. Who would he choose? Of course, he chose Rachel. "'I'll work seven years for free,' Jacob said, "'if I can marry Rachel.' So Jacob worked seven years, and at last his wedding day arrived. But that night, Laban played a nasty trick on Jacob. Instead of sending Rachel to marry Jacob, he sent Leah. Now, in those days, they didn't have electricity, so it was dark in their tent. And besides, women wore veils, and you couldn't really see their faces properly. (laughs) So Jacob suspected nothing." But the next morning, Jacob woke up and was appalled. His new wife lying beside him. (laughs) It wasn't Rachel. It was Leah. Jacob jumped out of bed. Laban, he cried, you scoundrel. But Laban said, work for me another seven years, and then you can marry Rachel. So Jacob worked for Laban another seven years, and at last, Rachel became his wife, Now Jacob had two wives, but of his two wives, he loved Rachel the best. Two sisters (laughs) competing for the affections of one man. Leah didn't have the looks or the love of her husband, but she did have something special. God still blessed her with children, lots and lots of children. Some might even say a wolf pack. And Rachel, as hard as she tried, was not able to have children for a long, long time, but had all the looks and love she could desire. Which leaves us with the age-old question that any good love triangle leaves us with. Who would you rather be? Rachel or Leah? What would you rather have? Desire or dependence? Favor or fertility? Beauty or babies? That was a saga, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, usually when people talk about this story, they talk about Leah. This story in this Bible is actually called The Girl That No One Wanted. So we can start with Leah. That's fine. That's fair. Um, you know, people always say that she was ugly, which is just a huge bummer because the words that they're using in the scriptures aren't actually saying that she's ugly. It says that she has soft and beautiful eyes. Um, It uses words like that she was warm and gentle, compassionate, she was very nurturing. She was a very sweet woman. I'm sure if we knew her, we would not consider her as ugly. Unfortunately, her sister was just drop dead gorgeous. So she was not the prettiest. And you see her in this story, triangled between her sister and another man, but she'd actually been in a triangle her entire life before this romantic relationship. you see that in the way that her father relates to her. I can only imagine how hard it would be if my father found me so lacking that he had to trick someone into marrying me. That would sting, wouldn't it? And then here she wakes up after her wedding night, hoping, okay, maybe finally I'll be with a man who sees the potential in me, and he's disgusted. And she has to come to terms with the fact that her whole life she will try to compete with and fall short of the... um, the acceptance and beauty of her sister. That's just a super big bummer for her. Leah got what it's definitely like to be the underdog, right? She knows what, it like, what it's like to be unseen and forgotten, less than feeling worthless. But let's talk about Rachel too. Because what a bummer to be portrayed as the one with a pretty face that gets all the love of the guy, so you must have no problems, right? Right? She was a pretty one, what's her problem? She was barren. In a world where babies meant significance, where children gave you the security that you'd need, where you had a heritage to leave behind, and a group of people that would take care of you when you got old, she had nothing. And she had to spend her whole life trying to figure out how that was gonna work out for her when the other woman in her life was popping out babies left and right. She exactly knew how Leah felt. She was wrestling with the exact same feelings. She knew what it was like to be unseen and forgotten, left behind, and worthless. Two sisters, each had something that the other one wanted. One had beauty, one had babies. And they spend two chapters in the Bible competing and wrestling with one another, trying to get what the other one had and not recognizing what each of them had themselves. Rachel connives and manipulates and takes matters into her own hands, trying to have a baby, hoping that a child in her arms will fill the gaping hole in her heart that it's not going to work. And Leah pops out babies left and right over and over again, hoping that just maybe one more will finally gain her the love and acceptance of her husband. So we're left with chapter upon chapter of hurt and comparison and anger and resentment. And all that it breeds are two women that just feel utterly alone and forgotten. What a triangle. There's a few verses that I really wanna zero in on here. And this is what um, about 30 years of competition breeds these two women. This is where the story gets really messy and where I didn't hear any of this as a child, but there's all sorts of crazy things that happen between the two of these sisters fighting for this triangle. It's found in Genesis 29, and I'm going to put a slide up here on the screen that's going to lead you chronologically through what's actually happening here so you can follow along. Here we go. Genesis 29, starting in verse 31. When the Lord saw Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. Leah conceived and gave birth to a son and named him Reuben, saying, The Lord seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and said, The Lord heard that I'm unloved and has given me the son also, and named him Simeon. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and said, At last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi, and she conceived again and gave birth to a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. And then Leah stopped having children, because dear Lord, for, like, that's just crazy. We all know. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to him. Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, Am I in God's place who's withheld offspring from you? And then she said, here's my maid, Bilhah. Sleep with her and she'll bear children for me so that I can build a family through her. Welcome another triangle. So Rachel gave her slave, Bilhah, to Jacob as a wife and slept with her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He's heard me and given me a son. So she named him Dan. Rachel's slave, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, in my wrestlings with God, I've wrestled my sister and won and she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she'd stopped having children, she took her slave Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Why not another triangle? Why not? Sounds good. (laughs) Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and she named him Gad, and then Zilpah bore a second son and named him Asher. Reuben, the firstborn, remember, went out into the wheat harvest and found some mandrakes in a field. Okay, this is where it gets really jacked up. Mandrakes were this fruit that were known to help with fertility. And he's going out to get these for his mom so that she can have more babies. And when he brought them to his mother, Leah, Leah, Rachel saw and said, Hey, give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah replied to her, Isn't it enough that you've taken my husband? Now you want to take my son's mandrakes? In the Bible. It's right here. Well, then Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came home from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, hey, you have to come with me because I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. And Jacob slept with her that night. God listened to Leah. She conceived and bore a fifth son. She named him Issachar. She conceived again and bore a sixth son. God's given me a good gift. This time my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. She named him Zebulun. Later, Leah had a daughter named Dinah. Here we are. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. Several chapters later, God does give her one more son. His name is Benjamin, but unfortunately, she dies giving birth to him. That is years and years and years of triangles and competition and just yucky angst between one another that gives Jacob this line of children. What a mess. There is a word that pops out in this whole chapter that has been sticking with me, that was really bothering me. I think I have it up on the screen. It says, it's the verse 22, I think. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and he opened her womb. God remembered Rachel. What does that mean? Did God forget Rachel? Does God forget about us? It's a super freaky thought. So I looked through Genesis to see if there are any other places where he's used this word remember before, and there is. Uh, He remembers Noah when the flood was coming and decides to save his creation and and these people, this family. And in Genesis 19, who remembers Abraham and decides to rescue Lot. This word remember in the Hebrew doesn't mean like a, a state of mind. It's actually an action. It means to mark. So God is recognizing Rachel. God recognized Noah and Abraham. He didn't forget. This isn't God just like chilling in his recliner with a kombucha watching Wheel of Fortune. And then, oh, Rachel, the womb thing, shoot. That was a close call. So I dug a little further to see if there was anywhere in the Bible where God did forget somebody. And my search came up short. Never has God forgotten anyone. Instead, there are verses upon verses upon verses like this Psalm 139 You've searched me, you know me, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Psalm 98 He remembered his love and faithfulness towards Israel. Isaiah 49, see, I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Matthew 28, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The scriptures are unwavering and build a case for a God who offers his presence and stays true to his promises. And he longs to rescue, to come to the aid, to, um, to deliver. He does not forget. He does not forsake. He's faithful. Had God ever forgotten Rachel? No. He had treasured her all along. He had his eye on her every step of the way. But although he was withholding something from her, he was with her and holding her the whole time because his value of Rachel was not based off of what she could produce or earn in the moment. And so in this moment, when he remembers her, marks her and heals her, something really beautiful happens because she wasn't just given a baby, You see what he was doing all along. Rachel had been barren 26 years up to this point. And remember when we went through that lineage, how she first reacted when her maid gave birth to her first two children. At first, she was filled with this pride and this malice. Ha, God has vindicated me, vengeance is mine. And the second, I've wrestled with my sister and I have won. Her attitude is so prideful and so competitive and and so full of malice. But when she gives birth to Joseph, there's none of that. There's just humility and reverence and thankfulness. And she names him Joseph, which means he takes away. God has taken away my disgrace. And in that moment, she sees that God wasn't after just healing her womb. He wanted to heal all of her how many of you know that sometimes God wants to do something in you before he does something through you? And that a life following God, submitting to his leadership, is not about what you can do for him. It's all about what he can do for you, his people. He's not after your heroics. He's after your heart. So Rachel and Leah's worth may have fluctuated in the eyes of the world. But their true worth never did. And neither does ours. We are not forgotten, we are favored. But how quickly we forget. Rachel was triangled between this desire for significance and the world's false promises. And Leo was triangled between her longing to be secure and the world's false promises. And here we are, you and I, stuck in this fight for acceptance or approval or authority or worth or value or beauty or power, whatever it is. We're stuck, we're triangled. And we will work and we will weasel And we will wrestle and warp and wedge ourselves into the most destitute and detestable situations just trying to earn acceptance and value. But our good and merciful and faithful God refuses to play the game. He will not let us earn. He cannot let us earn. He can only bless It's my guy. <laughs> oh. Our God <laughs> cannot play. He can't play in the tri- triangle games. He can't do it. Because he knows that it doesn't work this is how God works. Let's look in Matthew 1, the first chapter in the New Testament. We are met with a ton of names, and we are not going to read through those all today. Hallelujah. (laughs) But we are going to look at a couple things. This is God's promise, starting with Abraham, that carries through to Jesus in so many words. And you see in verse two that Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob. Here we are, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. And fast forward to 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 from the exile to Jesus Christ. 42 generations. We know that this does not look like a straight line like this chapter so beautifully puts out. We are in in story two and we already see how jacked this already is. This is not a straight line. This is a ball of yarn that is completely tangled. So how could a God keep his promise through 42 generations amongst all of these triangle games? Two ways. He's present, but he's not a player. He's not a player. He meets us in the triangles, but he does not play the triangle games. He doesn't bend. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't two time. He doesn't um, get us to jump through hoops just to earn things. He doesn't just break the rules this one time. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't play. He enters our circumstances and then calls us up and out of them. And he moves us forward and he walks the line. He works in one straight, consistent, never ending, never changing line. He is straight as an arrow, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I know in this moment, in this part of the story, In our generation in your stories you are surrounded by a ton of lack and you are an underdog in as many ways as I could count and you are being whispered into these triangle games trying to convince you that you can earn it but if he don't play we don't gotta play we get to push back against these triangles. We get to stand in these moments that say, hey, earn this, or be this, or don't be this. And we get to look up and start walking the line. We gotta lift our eyes up and set our sights a hundred years from now. And we have got to stand in confidence and trust in and learn about the God whose promises were true 100 years, 100 generations back. We've got to believe that God is faithful. God is faithful, and in a world that craves the immediate results and will throw you out the second that you aren't giving it what it needs, we've got to slow things down, and we have got to remember that we do not put our trust in a world that forgets, we put our trust in a God who remembers. We see this when we look at the life of Jesus. He gets it. And he doesn't just get this on some shallow, you know, oh, I feel you, I feel your pain. I'm so sorry. Let me be your friend. He knows what it's like to be unseen and rejected and less than the underdog. He knows what it's like to be worthless. He could write the book on this, guys. This is his whole life. This is his story. He was rejected and neglected and pushed aside in every way. He died naked and alone on a cross for heaven's sake. He was despised and spat on. And in those moments, he showed us a different way. He is the true and better Rachel because he didn't take matters into his own hands and manipulate and warp things to where things would be easy for him or give him what he wanted. He was able to stand in a moment and be honest about what he wanted, but then ultimately submit things to his father, trusting that he had remembered for 42 generations that he was going to come to bless and save and set the world free and that he could do it for Jesus one more day. And he was the true and better Leah who did not succumb to the pressures of this world to be all and do all and um, just gain the acceptance of her peers. But as he was hanging on that cross, he looked up and he chose to walk the line. Jesus knew the secret. He knew the God who remembered. And on the cross, he had eternity in mind. As he stood there, completely exposed, put on display as a reject, his present circumstances held him there because he trusted in the faithful and forever God. And though all signs pointed to forgotten, he trusted the God that remembered. And though in that moment he had never felt so unseen, he knew that in the unseen, that is where his God is most powerful. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 17 says it this way. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's play Genesis 20 through the scene. If babies equal acceptance and beauty is worth, then these girls lived a very sad dismal life. One died without love and one died in childbirth. But if we look at this story through the unseen, look what God did. God used these two women to be a part of his greater eternal story. These 12 sons that we looked at, those 12 sons born out of competition became the 12 tribes of Judah. That family, that family that we looked at with all of its drama was the family that God chose to use to build a forever covenant relationship with for eternity. And those two women were the women that he included to be part of that blessing for the whole world for forever. The things that they thought they needed so badly to be seen have passed away. They have all died. But look what God did in the unseen. If only they knew where to look. What if in those moments where we feel unseen, those could actually be the most powerful because we serve the most powerful God who works in the unseen? This is life since the beginning, apparently. Same tricks, same tactics, same lies, same triangles. All of them begging you to play the game, but you don't have to play. You've been given a choice between the seen and the unseen, to play in the triangles or to rise up and walk the line. And this world has conditioned you to feel like your value will be found in the seen. But in Christ, we are commissioned to look for the unseen. Because look, this world is so shady. Serve it and it will forget about you. But serve God, this God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, and you will serve a God who remembers. Hannah, you can come get it, girl. There is someone in this room that needs to hear this this morning. And I have been praying for you all week. And I woke up this morning amped to be here. Because even if you were the only person to hear this, this would be well worth it. God has his eye on you. And he needs to break through to you this morning. You are triangled. You are caught in a fight with the world for the acceptance and approval of something that's sucking the life out of you him or her. That job, that title, that promotion, that calling. That house, or that car, or that wardrobe, that relationship status, that number in your bank account, or that number of friends or followers, or that number on the scale. I don't know what it is. But you do not have to play the game, there's an escape route. God sent his son to die to put an end to these games and to set you free and he has not forgotten. Have you? Have you forgotten? Somebody this morning needs to remember the God who remembers and to lift up your eyes and take his hand and let him lead you out of this triangle and let him lead you to a place where your full life and freedom and fulfillment will be found in the unseen. God has not, did not forget Rachel, and neither has God forgotten you. God did not forget Leah, and neither has God forgotten you. God did not forget Jesus and neither has God forgotten you. They were seen by the God that works in the unseen. They were held by the God that remembers. He entered those triangles. He pulled them out and up and he gave, him, gave them a part in his eternal story. And this morning, he offers the same for you. Father, I thank you for these men and these women, my brothers and my sisters. I thank you for who you are in their lives. I thank you that you are a faithful God, consistent and true, that you never change, even in all the junk that pulls and pushes them away from that line. We know that you are the true and better, the most powerful that can work all things together for our good and your glory. Father, for those of us that have forgotten, would you remind us this morning? You are true to your word and you will not let us down. You will not play us. You won't lead us down a road just to embarrass us or leave us behind. You're not there to shock us or teach us a lesson You don't want us to learn things the hard way. You want us to walk in your wake in truth and in freedom. So Father, would you give us eyes to see in the unseen this morning? We wanna see where you are and what you're doing, how you're moving, and we wanna be a part of it. We wanna live this life fully in the potential that it has. We don't wanna miss it. So would you give us the courage and the grace? Holy Spirit, would you fill us? with a fire strong enough to push against the whispers of those triangles and to choose you and your truth and your faithfulness in Jesus' name, amen.